It's not about doing the things that great leaders do. It's about becoming the kind of person who does the things that great leaders do. Hello, and welcome to In Trust. My name is Lisa Lombard. And my name is Rick Kitagawa. And thank you for joining us for our show about the key ingredient for thriving teams, trust. And today we're excited to be joined by Judy Sims. Judy is a pioneering leadership trainer and much sought after leadership coach. In past lives, Judy was VP of digital media at the Toronto Star, CEO of tech startup Shopcaster, and a digital strategy consultant. In her current life, Judy is the author of the book, The Unstuck Leader, and founder of both the Center for Expansive Leadership and the Expansive Women Project. Judy's mission is to change the world one expansive leader at a time. But before we jump into our interview with Judy, here's a quick word from our sponsor. The future is now here, both in the metaphysical sense as well as the book sense. Our book, The Future is Trust, Embracing the Era of Trust-Centered Leadership, is now available in both ebook and paperback formats on Amazon and most places where books are sold online. So go get your copy. We are so excited to bring this reimagination of what a leadership book can be. And whether you prefer a clean, text-centric ebook or the full-color photo print edition, we've been intentional in cutting out the fluff to bring you a book full of actionable and practical insights that will help you build the trust needed to help your organization thrive and build a resilient culture. If you haven't got your copy yet, visit thefutureistrust.com to pick one up today. And if you have got your copy, we would love an honest review on Amazon. Trust is better together, so we hope you'll join us in our quest to make the world a more trustworthy and trusted place and get your copy of The Future is Trust at thefutureistrust.com today. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this all week. So have we, so have we. And thank you for being here, Judy. For people who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So in my past lives, I was a corporate vice president and a tech startup CEO And what was interesting in both of those roles is I found that I was quite miserable most of the time. And they're so opposite. I thought, you know, I'm going to be like a a, a corporate VP and that's going to be the awesome thing. And I hated it. And then I thought I'll go the exact opposite direction, be a tech startup CEO. Wasn't happy there either. Ended up in consulting. And what happened during that time is I became absolutely fascinated through my own experiences as well as things I was seeing in my clients and people around me, I became fascinated with stuckness, like why people get stuck and how they get unstuck. And so interesting, after being in the Alt-MBA program, I decided my big project was going to be for myself to investigate stuckness. And so I interviewed 100 people in 35 cities in 12 countries around the world about their experiences with being uh, stuck and getting unstuck. And at the same time, I kind of dove deeply into the world of systems leadership theory and life cycle renewal theory. And when I emerged on the other side, I had a book 
called The Unstuck Leader, which really outlined a philosophy of leadership that I had created through all this research that I had done. And over the last few years, that philosophy has morphed into expansive leadership. So I opened the Center for Expansive Leadership, which is where I do coaching and training, and the Expansive Woman Project, which is a free-to-join project aimed at helping women overcome imposter syndrome. Thanks for sharing that, Judy. And we're going to talk about stuckness and unstuckness and expansion a little bit more, but I want to jump into a point a little bit for you, because you're someone who's been very successful in all your different lives. And I love how it's written on your website that coaching isn't something that you fell into. It's something that you chose. And I'd love if you could just share a little bit more about what led to that choice. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I had sold my tech startup. It was not the kind of deal where everybody makes a lot of money and doesn't have to work anymore. (laughs) And so I was doing some consulting because I I didn't know what I wanted to do next. All I knew is that I didn't want to work in an office again. That was like, I didn't want to have a day-to-day going to the office experience. And so um, I landed in consulting. And what started happening was every client I worked with offered me a full-time job And something in me kept going like clunk, like, no, I can't do it. And then afterward, it would get awkward because I was like the client's bad boyfriend. I just wasn't that into them. And so I would eventually have to move on to something else. And over time, and in part due to the Alt-MBA, what I realized was what I was, the part of consulting that I loved was the one-on-one interaction with CEOs and vice presidents that I was working with and helping them noodle their way through difficulty they were having with other people, difficulties they were having within themselves and their own limiting patterns. And it just kind of naturally are our our relationship was naturally kind of going off into that space. And so one day literally came to me, I was like a lightning bolt. I'm like, Oh, I'm a coach. (laughs) Oh, that's what I'm doing here. I'm coaching people and made the decision to, you know, get my certification and, and, you know, make the big leap into full-time coaching. And I went to all those clients and told them I'm a coach now. And they were like, great, I'm your client. And here's three other people in the organization you can work with as well. So it happened very, very quickly. And that kind of whoosh into it is what really helped me know that I had made the right decision because it was so effortless. That's such a cool story. And I think it just highlights how much care and the work that you do and how valued that is, is just how quickly that transition and that, you know, that switch turned on for you. So that's so cool. And I would like to kind of dig into a little bit more that's probably aligned with that um, and things you mentioned, but you founded both the Center for Expansive Leadership and the Expansive Women Project. And you've mentioned expansion and I would love to know what does it really mean to you to be an expansive leader and have an expansive mindset and why does it matter so much? When we're in an expansive state, we're grounded in solid core values and purpose yet open to new ideas, people, and situations. To me, this is the perfect state of being for a leader, grounding and reaching, right? So we are, we know who we are. We are very solid in who we are. When we get into trouble in the world, in in our leadership life, in our personal life, it's when we forget who we are. So the opposite of an expansive state is a contractive state. And that is a state most of us spend about 80% of our life in. That is the state where it feels like the life is happening to us 
And we're in a state of threat and we're defensive, reactive and judgmental of both ourselves and other people. And most of us are wandering around like that, like things are coming at us. Uh, you know, it's cold out. I'm feeling very contractive about how cold it is in Toronto today. And I feel like the weather is very much <laughs> happening to me. Right? And so, you know, the quality of that contraction can be different. But all of us know people who move through the world in this contractive state. And you can literally sometimes see it physically. You see their shoulders hunched down. You see their head pointing down. You see the physical contraction. So what I say is when you are in an expansive state, it's actually also physically visible. Right. So think of a dancer or an athlete who has a very strong center core, right? Core muscles are very strong. That's what keeps them grounded. That's what keeps their balance. And yet their chest is open and their shoulders are down. And that's what enables them to have peak performance with no injury. So it's the same thing, both mentally and physically to be expansive. And so all my work is based on that principle. And then there's lots of other things that go along with it, but that is the central core of expansive leadership. It is not about all the things that great leaders do. It's about how to become the kind of person who does all the great things that great leaders do. I'm going to sit on that one just for one sec, because there's a lot. Can you repeat that last sentence again? It's not about doing the things that great leaders do. It's about becoming the kind of person who does the things that great leaders do. That's the grounding of, of expansiveness is the kind of person who does those things, the grounding and the reaching, because the world, as we know, is complex and ambiguous and, and uncertain and constantly changing. So there's no formula for what to do, but there is a formula for how to be the kind of person who does the thing. I love that. I feel like that's more powerful and more relevant than ever in this time. And there's, there's so many things about what you just shared about that as well. The embodiment of it, of connecting the mindset with the posture that goes with it, I think is a really powerful way. And for me, just kind of clicked and unifying some of those together, but something else I'm hearing in that too, is that it's not about having a playbook or the roadmap, but that expansive mindset is a compass to move forward. Yes. Oh, yes. That's very good. Yes. I like that. <laughs> it's, I'm going to use that. <laughs> it's so interesting to me um, to look at that. And I, I want to get to the point because it's making me think a little bit about recognized work because we talk with, with leaders and organizations a little bit of that feeling of contraction often comes from a lack of trust. Yes. Whether it's in yourself or with the situation, the organization. So I'd love to get a sense of where you see trust show up in your work with the leaders and organizations that you, that you help thrive? It's everything. As, as you pointed out, my, my work is about moving people from, it's helping them shift from a state of threat to a state of trust with consistency, right? Threats coming at us all the time. So there's no like one thing is like, oh, now I'm just trusting. And here I am out in the world. It's, it's really about, okay, something's coming at me. Am I going to be reactive? Or am I going to be responsive, right? So what's, what's going to happen in that moment? And that is the shift from threat to trust. Um, so all of my work is focused on that. And it comes from the ability to do that comes from the grounding. And when I say grounding, I mean grounded in solid core purpose and values. And it's about remembering who you are so that you, in those moments, well, what, am, what do I value? What's important to me? Who am I? 
and then make the decision from that place. And that is as much about trusting yourself as it is about trusting the situation that you find yourself in and your ability to move through it. Um, so yeah, that's everything in my work. I think longtime listeners are going to really resonate with a lot of that. One, the consistency point, which is one of our five facets of building trust with oneself and others, but also really, I'm so taken with this because I love the idea of starting at the core and really building that foundation that you can then take more proactive steps, right? And move away from, like you said, the reactiveness to a responsiveness and the intentionality and thought behind that. And we know that you authored the book, The Unstuck Leader, and I would love to kind of know how you you moved into your current work of expansiveness from that place of first dealing with what it means to be stuck. And so could you maybe talk a little bit more about what that looks like for most people of, of the feeling of stuckness and, and maybe how they can move forward from that? The feeling of stuckness is deeply personal for people. They blame themselves and yet at the same time are mystified by what's causing it. And that's how you slip into that reactive contractive state where you're defensive, reactive, and judgmental, right? So you're judging yourself. And then if you, you inevitably get exhausted from blaming yourself, so then you flip it around and you look, who else can I blame? <laughs> so then you blame other people for a little while, and then you bring it back and you blame yourself for a little while. It is, it is a deeply painful place to be because it is so filled with uncertainty, and because it bumps up against what we call in my tradition of coaching should values. So these notions of who and what we should be. And so when we're not living up to the expectation of who and what we think we should be, it causes the contraction to deepen. It causes us to enter into a fear state right? And the three big fears, of course, are fear of loss, fear of less, and fear of never. And underneath all of those fears is the ultimate fear that we're not enough. And if we're not enough, we're not worthy of love. And that stuff's primal, right? Because, you know, if you were a Neanderthal and you were deemed unlovable and kicked out of the cave, that was life-threatening. <laughs> you really want to be in the cave. Um, so, so that stuff is very primal, very deep within all of us. You know, the joke I always make is like you, me, everyone in your office, Tom Hanks, Vladimir Putin, all of us have a deep, deep fear that we're not worthy of love. And that determines so much of our behavior. So that's what a contraction looks like from that fear place. What happens is we dig deeper into the should values because they are generally externally imposed upon us by other people about the ideas of who and what they think we should be. Um, and we begin to prioritize our should values over the values about who and what we know we could be, right? So we're prioritizing should over could. And that action is an act of self-betrayal. And that deepens the contraction again, right? Because you're like denying your true nature, your true self, this notion of your core values, which is what I center people in is bringing them back to those core values. So they remember who they are. But when we do that, two things happen. So we betray ourselves. We're, be we're putting what we think we should be over what we could be. But on top of that, when we move out into the world in that way, we begin to prioritize our own personal comfort 
that comes from adhering to those should values and the expectations that come at us over the truth of what's actually happening around us. So when we prioritize comfort over truth, that's when leaders fail. That's the moment. And you see it everywhere. (laughs) People are prioritizing (laughs) comfort over truth. It's an act of self-betrayal. And it's an act, once, once you start doing that on a large scale, it becomes an act of betrayal of your organization, of the people that you lead, of, of the people around you. And the contraction deepens. You become like basically a little angry ball of contraction. And, and that's the work I do is to get you out of the ball and to flip the equation, right? To prioritize the truth of what's happening around you over your own personal comfort. That's what a great leader does. And to prioritize who and what you know you could be over who and what you think you should be. Those are the big things that create that grounding for the expansion to happen. I love that explanation of it because I I don't think I've ever heard that explained with that level of clarity to it as well. And also with that candor and recognizing just how powerful that betrayal is. And I think it's hard to overcome any kind of betrayal, let alone one with yourself. And it's hard to re rejig priorities, let alone those that are so deep in that one. So I can really see stuckness becoming this spiral. That's really hard to come out of. Yeah. It's exactly that. I call it a contractive cycle because, you know, it starts with some sort of plateau that got you stuck and then it moves into fear, right? You start to cling to certainty and significance. You prioritize comfort over truth. That is the self-betrayal. You beat yourself up over the self-betrayal because you know it, right? It feels really awful. There's a part of you somewhere that knows there's a self-betrayal going on. And and sometimes it comes out when you've had a couple drinks. (laughs) Sometimes it comes out when you're dreaming. It comes out, right? There's like that little moment where you're like, what am I doing? And then there's all kinds of self-recrimination. And that entrenches us in a small identity, which from that place, it creates all kinds of limiting patterns of, of belief and behavior that keep us in the plateau that get us more stuck. And you're right, it goes down, 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 down into a, a, a spiral of death, basically. This is probably this, its own conversation. And I know it's in the book as well, but I'm just wondering, I, I think what you're saying right now is probably resonating with a lot of listeners at a pretty deep level. Uh, I'm curious, what's the smallest action? someone could take if they're feeling that spiral to find the floor or just hit pause on the spiral to start moving, you know, stop the contraction to start looking towards expansiveness or just even the possibility of hitting reset. So there's a little exercise I like to do, and I've been doing it for years. I have a random reminder on my phone. So I have an iPhone. I use mind jogger. If you have an Android, you can use random remind me. And I set it to go off four times a day. And what I do is like, it goes off. It's like a lovely gong, drives my husband nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there's a lovely gong that goes off. I like it. Um, And in that moment, I ask myself, where am I? Am I in a to me state? As in, is the world happening to me? Which is contraction. Or am I in a by me state, which is in that I have some agency and I am creating my experience in the world? There's two more states beyond that. One is through me, which is what happens when you're working really well and you're in this state of flow and it's just so fantastic. And you look up and three hours have gone by and it's amazing. 
Um, and then the last one is as me, when you're basically a monk in a cave vibrating at the same frequency of the universe and like you're not a person anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like completely see-through. Never been an as me. Sounds great, but that's never happened to me. I get to go to through me a lot, but most of the time, and you will find 80% of the time, most of us are in the to me stage. Most of us are in a brief moment of contraction. Most of us are feeling like the world is coming at us. Most of us are feeling reactive, judgmental, and defensive. Most of us are either living in the past or in the future, right? So we're rehashing old dramas in the past, like having arguments in your head, you know that? <laughs> or you're worrying about the future. I'm really good at worrying about the future while having arguments in my head. Um, so like I'll make up something I think somebody's going to say, and then I'll have like the whole argument in my head. So <laughs> that's contractive behavior that is in the to me state. When we feel triggered, we're in the to me state, right? When we're, when we're just kind of miserable, we're in the to me state. And when we're in the by me state, we are shifting into uh, agency and we are now creating our experience. So to me is threat, by me is trust. And that's what, when I say all my work is about moving, shifting people from threat to trust, that's exactly what it is. So if you want to start to understand what's going on with you, set the reminder four times a day, goes off randomly. Sometimes you'll get like three in an hour and then, you, then none until the end of the day. It's, just, it's kind of fun. And then just start to observe, start to observe the behavior. And in that moment, when you realize where you are, if you have the time, if you're able to stop feel your feet on the ground, take a deep thoughtless breath, just one breath where you're not thinking anything. We can all do it for one breath and ask yourself, how can I make that shift? Is it possible for me to make that shift right now? And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but now you're aware. Because so many of us, we just kind of walk through life having no idea that this is what we're doing, that we're in essentially a reactive victim mindset. That's how we walk around. I love so much about that, the practical nature of it, the fact that you're also creating a, a strategy to help externalize the reminder, as opposed to, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, just like put a note, but having something actually trigger this response and clarity and awareness, I think is a great practical first step for a lot of people. And I think your emphasis on on clarity and getting clear on how, where are you noticing that I think is always so foundational to making any sort of transformation because like you said so often there's so much stuff going on the voices in our head the inner monsters all of that are, are chatting and so we we kind of lose sight of what's like you said what is true and speaking of kind of the voices and chatter in one's head i have heard that you are kicking off a virtual live learning experience for women around overcoming imposter syndrome and everything looks amazing from, from what I've seen so far, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more about this and what led you to developing this course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So first of all, it is entirely based on everything we've just been talking about. <laughs> it's nice when you come up with one thing that works for everything and <laughs> just keep doing it. The program was created because in my year, all my years of coaching time and time again, I see in my practice, as well as just women out in the wild, making themselves small. And by small, I mean that they are not owning their own success and it is endemic. In fact, 
Researchers estimate that 70% of the general population experiences imposter syndrome, at least, you know, once or twice in their lives. I think the number for women is even higher. So men definitely get it. And I definitely work with male clients who have imposter syndrome and we do this work, but women experience it slightly differently in my experience. So where men are more likely to experience imposter syndrome as I don't belong here. Women seem, in my non-researchy way, just from my own personal experience, women seem to experience it as I'm a bad person. Men who were bullied or abused as children also experience it as I'm a bad person. So we're going to work on that basis with the notion that for some reason, we don't deserve our own success and that we somehow have only gotten to where we are because of luck or because somebody was being nice to us or whatever that reason is, uh, we're going to go back and we're going to do all the work. Most of this stems from those should values we were talking about earlier. That's where imposter syndrome seems to grow out of. There's lots of situations that can trigger it. But if you dig down underneath, it really is the should values that you learned, not just from your parents and teachers, but also from your friends when you were growing up, you know, like in, in adolescence, like what color your hair should be or what music is cool or what kind of food you should be eating, how much you should weigh, all of these factors come in. And then as we get older, people want to tell us what kind of employee we should be, what kind of a wife we should be, what kind of a mother we should be. And oh my God, is motherhood ever the mother load of the should values? And all of these things set up these incredible expectations that we could never possibly meet when we focus on who and what we think we should be, instead of going back to who and what we know we could be, who we are. That's the work we're going to be doing. I am so fascinated by this work and by by this course and by some of the design elements of it as well. So speaking for myself, having been a woman leader who certainly felt imposter syndrome, it's been incredibly isolating. In those, because you feel all alone and because of the nature and the thoughts that are going on, you don't want to tell anyone about it because it feels like it just makes it worse and you're trapped that way. And something I really love about what you're creating here is the community around this and creating a safe space for people to actually talk about it and realize I'm not alone in this. Other people are going through it too. And I think that's sometimes an easier way to overcome some of the blame or some of the shame or some of the conditioning that we've had as women as well coming into this space. Yeah, because we we are conditioned into a scarcity mindset where there's only so much success to go around for women. And also because we um, we internalize the should values where we start imposing them on ourselves and then we turn around and we impose them on other people, right? We get them from our moms <laughs> and our sisters. And right, so, so yes. Um, The reason why I'm so excited about the women supporting women aspect of it is that I've run over the last year uh, workshops with about 150 women, just one hour quick workshops in imposter syndrome. And in each of them, I had breakout groups and the feedback every time at the end was the best part was connecting to other women and hearing their stories and knowing I'm not the only one every time. And when you look at the research 
that's the number one factor in improving your imposter syndrome is confiding in other people who have it. Bring it back to you, if you don't mind on this one, because I think a lot of people would look at your path and your career and say, you took a big leap in leaving your role as a corporate executive and then selling your startup as well to go into the space. And I'm curious how you learned to embrace that expansive mindset and trust in yourself in your own journey. Slowly, <laughs> very slowly. Um, I, yeah, you know, when, when I was a corporate vice president and I had reached the level that I always wanted, that was like, I was, I was the youngest female vice president at that company that had ever had. Um, I was in the place where I thought I was supposed to be. And even before, when I knew the promotion was coming, but before I even had it, I had such enormous feelings of dread in me. And what I realized then is there's a disconnect between what I thought I always wanted and, and it's happening now. And it's, it's not even just like, Ooh, I'm a little scary. It was like, no, like I had a full body. No. <laughs> to being a corporate vice president before I was even in the role. And part of it was looking around at the other vice presidents and thinking, not sure I want to be like them, right? <laughs> like, I'm not sure that this is for me. Um, in that particular organization, there's coach all kinds of awesome vice presidents in other, <laughs> in other organizations. <laughs> but in that one, wasn't wasn't what I necessarily wanted for myself. And so I began a journey of, or I actually, I should call it an exploration. I began an exploration of what was going on, what happens to us. And this happens to all of us um, is, you know, we, we, we come up through life, you go to school and then you go to high school and then you go to university and then you get your first job and then you might get married or you might, you know, buy an apartment or you might buy a car. And there's all these steps, step, 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 step. And you generally get all those steps all the way up to director. That's the level I see. So you, you, you know, you're hired in your job and then you're a manager and then you're a director and it's like, whoosh, off you go. Lawyers have a single similar progression. Doctors have a similar progression, military, similar progression. There's like all the steps you take and the steps end usually around the age 37, 38. Um, so by that time, you know, a lot of people have had a kid, even like, they're kind of like, all right, I did everything. Where am I now? <laughs> and the question is, how did I get here? Like, I just, I just took all the steps and I wasn't conscious of what I was doing through it. It was just, there was a goal and I marched towards the goal and, and that was it. And so you get there and this is the first major plateau of your life happens at 38. And there is literal actual research that shows this factor. And when I interviewed over a hundred people about stuckness, the first major incidence of stuckness on average happened at 38. It was like amazing. All the clients that come to me now who are in their early forties, started feeling stuck at 38. <laughs> and the research shows if you're 38, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm 51, so I'm nearly on the way out. <laughs> the research shows that it your happiness and satisfaction with life begins declining at 38 and continues to decline until 53 when it comes back up again. This is what might be known as the good old midlife crisis. So we're taught that, that feeling you know, we get to the top and we're like, I don't know where to go now. We're taught that that feeling now means that something bad has happened, that something's wrong and that we have messed up in some way. 
And we take it very personally, right? And we get mystified by it. When in actuality, this is a very natural and normal life cycle progression. The problem is we're taught about life cycle stuff all the way up to 38 because I named all those steps, right? And it, like when you're a baby, we can name it by the week what you're supposed to be doing, right? It's like I'm at six weeks, I should be, I don't know what babies do, but right? Like there's, there's like a nice progression of what, what we should be doing. You hit 38 and it's almost assumed that you go into some form of stasis and that you stay, you're cooked, you stay that way until 65 when you retire. And then we talk about life cycle again, but there's this like whole middle era of 30 years in which nobody says anything about your life cycles. It's just kind of like, well, you're done and you'll come out the other side and you'll go golfing. And that's, that's the way it goes. But what's really happening is you're churning probably three or four times through a pattern of, of getting stuck and falling into some kind of doldrums feeling where you're really unhappy and then reevaluating your life, going into a bit of a cocoon, which is what I did when I left my startup. I cocooned, I stepped back, I took a look at what was going on in my life. I got ready for the next phase of my life. And then I went back into go, go, go mode. And it's a cycle and it'll keep going. And soon I'm sure I will start to feel that plateau whispering at me again, and I'll have to go around through the cycle again. And the thing is, though, is to accept it as the gift that it is, instead of looking at it as like, oh, no, now something's wrong. And what am I going to do? Or worse, which is what most people do. And that slog through the 30 years, unconscious and in threat and not trusting and feeling contractive and feeling desperate, thinking that somehow magically at 65, when you retire, if you even get to retire at 65, that all of a sudden you'll be like a fully formed human on the other side who likes to golf, I guess, or whatever it is that you want to do. <laughs> but that's not what happens. Those people come out the other side and they're more lost because they wasted those 30 years. So when you feel that feeling of what I was feeling, I hate being a vice president, right? I went through the cycle. I became a corporate tech CEO. Uh oh, that didn't work either. <laughs> didn't like that. Cycled again, came out the other side a coach. And this is my life's joy. This is like the best thing that's ever happened to me, but it couldn't have happened unless I had been miserable for a little while. And that's just what we have to accept. So part of expansiveness and that trust is to get it. It's like, oh, this is going to happen. And this is my opportunity. How interesting, how fascinating. I can now dig around a little bit and find what makes me curious and see what's over there and go on a little exploration and see what happens. It's all good. I think that reframe is so powerful of acknowledging that stuckness is just part of it or feeling the plateau and that, okay, well, instead of like hating it and slogging through, it's like, okay, we need to go on this exploratory journey. And that's just going to be part of part of life, especially if we're, if we've traditionally been on that very kind of step-by-step -step path, which, um, if anyone asks, I, I, I realized I was like, wait, no, I am 38. I totally had no idea how old I was. I was like, no, doing the math. I'm, th I'm like, oh, I'm not 39 yet. No, I am 38. But I also recognize that my path has been so kind of, I would say a lot of those smaller cycles earlier, fortunately. And so I feel like I don't want to break the the data, but <laughs> definitely on the outlier. It's an here. average. <laughs> it's an average. average. It's average. I've had clients who have hit that thing at 30 
And I have clients who hit Got it at 50. So it's, it's an average. That's yeah, Don't worry about that. <laughs> also, there's a series we can make that are called micro transitions, which are move to a new city, get a new job, right? Like get some plastic surgery, <laughs> buy a sports car. Like there's little transitions you can make that will give you that boost and get you going. And some of us will, but you will, you will at some point hit that, that kind of wall. And the important moment is at that time to be grateful for it. That's the only response is gratitude to hitting that stuckness because this is your soul telling you a message and, and, and it's an opportunity for exploration. You've been on a journey up until this point. Journeys are for tourists on buses, right? You're going to get off the damn bus. And you're going to go be Indiana Jones. You're going to explore. You're going to see what's out there and you're going to hit some walls and things aren't going to work. And you're going to turn around and go in a different direction, just like I did. And you'll find your place, but it's all a gift. It's joyful. And that's the thing to remember. Totally. And just to be clear, I've definitely hit that plateau multiple times now. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Excellent. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. Oh, this has been so awesome. Um, Judy. And I, I want to, you, you've already been super generous. I feel like there's the, the timer apps, which we'll link to in the show notes to share with listeners. And just the whole idea of really finding that clarity and, and knowing and acknowledging that being stuck is, or feeling, hitting the wall is part of the journey. Would there be any other practical advice that you would want to give a leader struggling to overcome imposter syndrome? immediately go to values. That's the first work I do with every every client who comes in my door is we set values. There are well, on my website, there's lots of ways to, <laughs> to, uh, to if you if you if you search Judy Sims, uh, what are your values? It should come up. Um, there's questions that you ask yourself, um, some hints about where your core values lie. It's in things that you're good at. It's in things you were good, uh, you like to do as a child, who you were as a child. They're in things that put you in a state of flow. They're in things that have made you successful. And they're in what other people think that you, about you, because you're to some degree living your values every day and people observe it and see it. And if you do that work, if you make lists of all those things and then look for the common elements, you can arrive at three to five core values that are the qualities of life and character that are most important to you. And like I said, there's lots of information on my website about how to do that. Once you're in that state, when you found what your values are, you will exhale. (laughs) You will literally go like, oh, that's who I am. That's what makes sense. And when I work with clients, it's my favorite day is values day when they've done all the homework and they come back and tell me what their three to five core values are, because it's like, I can see them for the first time. There's like a real person in front of me. Now I see the soul of who they are and they're always good. And you're always proud of them. And if you read a list of qualities that a person had, you'd go, I like that person because it's your soul, (laughs) it's your core, that's who you are. So if, yeah, if you can't do anything else, if you can't get a coach, if you can't do anything else, just land on those values. That's that's such a big deal. I, we're going to link to the values work specifically that you have. And I just, you offer so many amazing resources on your website and something I want to call into and just even explaining that you're talking about like, you know, doing the homework to find your values, something that you've shown here through our conversation as well is 
I think something happens in leadership development is people are just like, oh, we'll just turn to your values. Or one of Rick and I's favorite one is like, oh, we'll, we'll just be empathetic. And the question behind that is the how. And I think you do a brilliant job of, illumin- uh, of illuminating the how in practical ways for leaders to really internalize it and really see themselves and see their own possibilities and what might be on that side of it. So I can only imagine what you're putting into the overcoming imposter syndrome course as well. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well for people who are interested. Judy, just so you can say it out loud as well, where are some of the best places where people can find you and find out more about your different endeavors? Mm-hmm. So I have many websites. <laughs> I do have many different endeavors. Um, it's been part of my exploration. Main website is judysims.com. Um, Sims only has one M in it. No superfluous M's for me. So Judy Sims, eight letters.com center for expansive leadership.com or the expansive woman.com. <laughs> I used to have another website, but I got rid of it. So I'm, I'm paring them down. <laughs> well, we will also link to all of them in the show notes too, if anyone is looking to, to try and catch this, but I would really encourage anyone to go and take a look because you do provide some incredible resources and some of your deeper trainings or opportunity to work with you is an abs- absolutely transformational opportunity for people. And this conversation was just such a good taster of that. Thank you so much for your time today, Judy, and for sharing some of your insights with us. Thank you for having me. And boy, you guys are really good interviewers. Those were amazing questions. So thank you for that. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you so much, Judy. And that's a wrap for this episode of In Trust. Thanks for listening. Remember that trust is better together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone who you think might appreciate it and leave us a review. The In Trust podcast is produced by Spotlight Trust where we help leaders and organizations put trust at the center of their work so they can achieve more than they ever thought possible while adapting to our fast-changing world. If you'd like to get in touch with us, simply email podcast at spotlighttrust.com.